Well, good morning, Harvest. Good to see you. Uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 17. And um, you know that um, you know that thing where a wife says to her husband, "Honey, can you go to the fridge and get me that thing in the fridge?" And then he goes, and he goes, "Honey, it's not here." And then she goes over to the fridge to the exact place that she said it was, and it's right there. Do you know that thing? The men say, no, no idea. The women are like, every day of my life, uh, I'm, I'm living through that. Well, listen, that is called man-looking. It has a name. That's called man-looking, and the Urban Dictionary defines it this way. Uh, the inability of those with the XY male chromosomes to see anything that is clearly in sight they require an XX female chromosome member of the population to guide their eyes to the item within plain view. <laughs> oh my gosh, how do I get into Revelation from here? I have no idea now, see? Um, well, listen, we're, <laughs> that's silly, but we're coming to this chapter in Revelation. I feel like this chapter after chapter is like this. But this is an extremely difficult chapter uh, in the book of Revelation. And, and one of the angels essentially does this, does what a wife would do with her husband. One of the angels does this with the apostle John, takes him right to the spot in the refrigerator, points to the shelf and says, there it is right there. Takes John to see something. In fact, verse one says, said this, and I'll read the whole passage in a moment. One of the seven angels said to John, come, I will show you the judgment. And, and, and there's evidently something here in chapter 17 that God wants us to see because he took the apostle John right to the spot to look right at it, pointed it out. And then John recorded this. We're gonna read it in a moment. It's here in the revelation because it's something that our eyes have to be open to especially as we navigate through life as Christians in the midst of a culture that is opposed to the word of God and a society that is spiraling down toward the final judgment. The seventh bowl, uh, we saw the sixth bowls, the, the seven bowl judgments were launched last, last Sunday as we looked at uh, chapter 16 and those first six were all plagues, but the seventh one is not a plague like the previous six, but is in fact an announcement of Babylon's or the world system's final judgment. And that's what we're going to see in the passage here. So Revelation 17, you follow along in your Bible as I read, and uh, then we'll begin working through what God has for us today. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, 
Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, that's so easy to understand. You hardly even need a preacher to work through it. Um, but let's, uh, let's take a shot here at uh, understanding the depth of what we have in front of us in this chapter uh, in your notes and on the screen, you're going to see this. God wants my eyes to be open uh, to the world's characteristics. We're going to look at six characteristics of the wor world that we see here. And by that, we mean the world system. And so here's the first one. Um, God wants my eyes to be opened to the world's deceptive beauty. God wants to take us, take, get the angel to take us right to the refrigerator, right to the shelf, point right to the thing, that we would see these characteristics, that we would see the world's deceptive beauty. I don't know how many of you watched the Grammys last week, but they were on TV. And um, I didn't watch the Grammys, but I saw a number of reports afterwards, especially on social media, some media, some news that I was reading as well, uh, mostly because there were some Christian artists there that I follow, and they were kind of talking about it. And then there was a whole thing about this one performance that upset a lot of Christians uh, that happened there. Um, but anyways, I read all these reports. You may have watched the whole thing. And it's obvious that when you watch an award show like the Grammys or the Oscars, it's obvious that it is an exhibition of beauty. And I'm going to put beauty in quotes. It's an exhibition of beauty. It's beautiful people and um, uh, beautiful dresses and beautiful music and beautiful performances, beautiful artistry all happening. It, it's really a pageant 
that's parading what the world considers to be beautiful. And I think it's safe to say, and you would probably agree with this, that the entertainment industry is the most powerful influencer with respect to beauty. Would you say you would agree with that? The entertainment industry is the most powerful influencer with respect to beauty. We're very influenced by what the entertainment industry puts in front of us. And, and so people are drawn into that. I'm not talking about us. We're drawn into it. We invest time in it. We're, we're interested in it. We, we read about it. We watch it. We're, we're drawn into the entertainment industry. We spend a lot of money really on it. We're drawn into it. But everyone also knows, we would say this, and you don't even need to be a Christian to say this, but we also know as we're watching the whole thing, as we're watching this spectacle of beauty, we all know that it's a facade, that it's a, that it's a false front for what actually is behind the scenes. And again, you don't even need to be a Christian to know that. Even those who don't have Christ are not into the word of God, don't have our ethic, even if you don't have these things, you look at and you go, that's just a front. Behind the beauty that the Grammys and the Oscars and that Hollywood projects is rampant immorality. And that manifests in all kinds of ways. Drug and alcohol abuse, sexual excess of all kinds, lying and manipulation, greed, power, toxicity. So behind the beauty, it's not so much ugly. We often think that of that as being the opposite. But behind the beauty, it's not so much that it's ugly, it's that it's evil. And God wants our eyes to be open to that. Open to see the deceptive beauty of the world around us. Now, notice in the text here that the world system, that's what we're talking about in the chapter, the world system is being exposed. Look at verse 4. We'll come back to 2 and 3 in a moment. In verse 4, we notice that it's, it's beautiful on the surface. This woman, also called a prostitute, a number of pronouns referring to her throughout the chapter. This chapter is ostensibly about her, but 10 times we see the word woman or prostitute referring to the same one. And it's a metaphor for the world system. One lexicon says this, it's figurative for a government that is hostile to God and his people. And in fact, it's, it's, it's a metaphor or an image for all governments throughout all of human history that are hostile to God and to his people. So notice again, verse four, this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. Now this is the first indication that we have someone who's beautiful, but also rich and, and able to display opulence because only the wealthy in the ancient Near East could have clothing that was these two colors. I mean, you can head off to Marshall's, my favorite place to shop. You can go to Marshall's, you can go to Marshall's and you can buy all kinds of purple or red clothing. Not really a big deal. You can be poor and wear those colors now. But back in the day, in order to afford the dyes that would turn your garments these colors, you needed to be rich. So this is someone who's rich. There's a symbol here of, of wealth and opulence. She was adorned further. Not only is she wearing very opulent clothing, she's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She has all the accessories and they're genuine. They're not fakes. And beyond that, she's holding in her hand this golden cup. Again, an indication of her wealth and her beauty. 
And the message here as we, as we just begin to get into this first characteristic is simply that, beware the beauty of this world. The clothes, the adorning, what's being held in the hand is all a facade intended to deceive us, to draw us in and away. Draw us into what's behind it and away from our God. And in, in, in fact, very specifically, we see the second characteristic. We're actually being drawn into her adulterous ways. God wants my eyes to be open to the world's adulterous ways. Go back to verse two now and see that with this beautiful woman, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So it's, it's a world system. It's the governments that have bought into it. And it's the people of earth who have bought into what the governments are saying. The governance of these leaders. Government is in bed with the system and citizens become drunk on the entire thing. Losing their ability to think straight, to discern. The ability to make good decisions and choose morality instead. Choose God instead in his gospel. And then John says, because he's seeing this image of this beast, of this woman of the world system. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It was full of blasphemous names, had seven heads and 10 horns, parallels here to several Old Testament prophecies concerning the same thing, images that we've seen in the gospel, images that we see have seen previously in Revelation as well. And this is an allusion to this woman or this prostitute being almost one in the same with the governments. Now, coming back to that golden cup that we saw in the previous point, she's so beautiful and she has this cup in her, in her hands and we might think that it too was an indicator of the opulence, that perhaps inside was this fine wine that one could drink. But in fact, it's not full of the best wine. But verse four continues, it's full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Which, by the way, is a common Old Testament image. God often said in the, word, in the word that Israel was said to be committing spiritual adultery, that Israel was an adulterer. Whenever Israel went off to, to imitate the pagan nations around it or, or began worshiping the small g gods of these nations, God always used the image of sexual immorality of an adulterer to describe Israel and what they were doing. They had turned themselves over to this prostitute. They had given themselves over to this spiritual adultery. But there's no need here to limit this to sexual pleasure. Because the image, the metaphor extends much broader than that. It encompasses all immorality. And especially in this passage, it relates less to sexual matters, less to physical pressure, uh, uh, pleasure, and more actually to that of control or of power, that of, of economic control. This is more about power and possessions than it is about pleasure. And you know, when we start to think about it, we're talking in very grand terms about the entire world and this system playing out. But there's a very personal application of this in each of our lives because when you start to think about it, 
And the scriptures are clear, clear on this point that when, when we're talking about sin in our own lives and what we're battling, it always comes down to three categories of sin. There's really nothing outside of money, sex, and power. Those are the broad categories of all of our sin. And you can, there's all kinds of different subcategories under each of those and ways to qualify it. But it comes down to the battle that you're going to have with sin this week. The battle that you're going to have with temptation is going to come down to one of those three things, or perhaps all three. Money, sex, and power. And that's what we're seeing in this world system. She uses her beauty to lure humanity into her detestable ways. Again, very personal, individual application here, but also very global application in terms of the entire world. And there's no secret as to who this is. Verse five, on her forehead was written a name of mystery. And by mystery, simply meaning something that wasn't known before is now known. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. That's who she is. That's the evil that this world has given itself over to. That's the adulterous ways that we need to be aware of. And this leads naturally to see her. This is the third characteristic. This leads naturally for us to see the world's, this woman's vicious persecution of believers. Quite simply, what we stand for in Christ, if, if, if you're a genuine believer and you have a desire to live a righteous life and you're pursuing holiness, if that's you and that's what you're going after, the control of the Holy Spirit in your life, then, then, then this woman hates you. What we stand for, if we're around, condemns her, condemns the world and condemns anyone who follows her. I mean, the reality is, and some of us have had this experience back when we were in our sinful days, and you wanted to commit some sin. You didn't think of it that way. You want to go out and party. The last thing you want is a Christian around. Because that's, you can't party hard when there's someone around who loves Jesus and who loves holiness. And so that's exactly what's going on. The world system doesn't want Christians around. So let's viciously persecute them. The world, when you're living the Christian life, listen, the world rightly hates you. So John saw this woman, verse six, look at this. John saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So faithful Christians throughout all of the epochs of history, faithful Christians, especially those who had given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, are said to be this irresistible intoxicant for the woman. She can't help herself. She loves it so much. I can't help but persecute Christians. I can't help but, but, but drink their blood to, to, to martyr them. You know, history bears this out. I'd like to go into a little history now. I'm not so good at math, as you know. More than willing to talk about history. History bears this out where the gospel, listen to this, where the gospel conflicts with government, one of two things is going to happen. Okay, you with me on this? 
where the gospel, <laughs> where the gospel conflicts with government, one possibility, the persecution of believers eventually occurs. Okay? Where the gospel conflicts with government, the persecution of believers eventually occurs. Or secondly, the other option, the church compromises, becoming so like the culture, okay, that it becomes inoffensive to the government and the government doesn't care. Two examples. Let's talk about China and let's talk about a place called Canada. China, the true church of Jesus Christ, gospel-centered people, the true church is persecuted and underground because that version of the woman, the world system in China is communist and can't stand Christians because the message of communism and the message of Christianity are diametrically opposed to each other. The government has no choice. It has to persecute Christians. That's China. In Canada, the woman takes the form of democracy. Completely different strategy. Gave the church such freedom and such acceptance that the majority of what were gospel-centered churches a century ago have so compromised that they are now a shell of what they once were. A few seniors scattered in wooden pews, their buildings repurposed as daycares, restaurants, and museums, or torn down altogether to put up condos. In fact, there's a story I think is in Barry today, and I think CTV Barry covered it as well. Huge story for Simcoe County. A couple bought a former church and they're renovating it. It's a slow news week in Simcoe County. The big story, two outlets are covering the fact that a couple bought a church and are turning it into their dream home, just like south of here. And what I'm thinking, it's sad. Because no doubt that church at one time was a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. And at some point they compromised that message. And they became like the world and they became irrelevant. And they died. Oh, I'd like to believe that the building was sold to the nice couple to renovate because it grew so big that they had to move down the street and they built a brand new property, a brand new church to accommodate the people. Or that that church had actually multiplied itself and, and there were actually a number of church plants all around the area that came out of that church. I'd like to believe that, but it's not true. That church died and the denomination sold the building to the nice couple on the news so they could renovate it into their dream home. And I'm gonna say this, if a church flies the flag that we have been told to fly, Revelation chapter one, verse nine says that we are to fly the flag of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's the flag that we fly. If a church flies the flag of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it will in time be persecuted. It'll come. But if a church flies any other flag, it will sink into irrelevancy and it will die having caved into the culture. Here's what Tozer said about this. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ 
acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. And that's a hard word. That word ultimatum is a hard word. But is John 14, 6 not an ultimatum? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an ultimatum to the world. You have no other access to God except through Jesus Christ. And that's the flag that must be flying over our church. And I'll just, churches like ours, are, we're, we're sitting on the razor's edge in our society today because the gospel we preach unapologetically is offensive to every aspect of the culture around us. The gospel that we preach is offensive to every level of government, our city, our province, our country. The gospel we preach is offensive to business. It's offensive to the educational system on the public, in the public system. It is offensive to the entertainment industry. And we should not expect to be free to preach this gospel in the way that we do for much longer without persecution coming our way. God wants our eyes to be open to that. And we should also see that behind that, this isn't about government. It really isn't. It's not, a, it's not about the woman and, and, the, and the prostitute, the world system. Because behind all of that, see this next characteristic, there is this unseen source of power. There's a behind-the-scenes influence here that transcends the world's governments, that transcends the agencies, that, that transcends the forums that people are so upset about on Facebook. God makes this comment that shows, in fact, or John makes this comment that shows uh, just how much he's struggling to fully understand these characteristics as they're unfolding in front of him, to see the world for what it really is. I appreciate that John is struggling with this because I think we struggle with it. And there's an opportunity for us here to hear what the angel is saying to and, and, and to be challenged as well in this. But as John is seeing all of this revealed to him, look at verse six, the latter part. He says, when I saw her, when I saw the woman, when I saw the prostitute, when I saw this world system, he says, I marveled greatly. Now the problem here, and every commentator agrees with this, is this is a really positive statement. This is John looking at this woman and going, like, I'm super attracted to her. I like her. I'm, 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 I'm drawn to her. I'm taken with her. And the angel can see this on John's face. And he addresses it with him. He's, he's, he's not seeing the evil that's flowing from what first appears to be very beautiful. She presents so well. She's so convincing. She's so stunningly beautiful. And yet filled with such ugliness and evil. Her ways perverted. 
her motives corrupt to the core. The angel seeing this, verse 7, asks him, why do you marvel? Why are you saying so? Why are you so taken with her? Why do you think she's so, why are you looking at her that way? He says, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. I'll tell you what you don't know about her. And of the beast with the seven heads and the 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to the destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life, all these unbelievers, all these people that are with her, this vast crowd of people that are with her. They're going to marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. They're so taken with her. And you see that. By the way, so much of this we saw back in chapter 13 about the beast and the mark and all of that. And you read something like that and you just go like, I just want to take something like that. In fact, I want to take this phrase. It's something that's hard. It's not easy to understand. I want to make it as simple as I can. And so here's one sentence to kind of explain what we just read. The beast has had its past influence. The beast was shut down by God for a long season, but that beast will rise again in what appears to be a great miracle to wreak havoc near the end of the, time, of, of the age. And again, that reflects visions that we've already looked at in Revelation. The beast has yet one final play after which it will be done for all eternity. And so the angel, having said this, the angel says to him in verse nine, John, this calls for a mind with wisdom. You just need to think this through. Only those who are redeemed, in fact, will be able to understand this. You have to be saved to understand this stuff. The doctrine over this, by the way, is called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. If you want to jot down the reference of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and read that chapter, you'll read what the illumination means. But essentially, it means this, that two people can read the same passage of Scripture, for example, Revelation 17, and a believer and an unbeliever, and the Spirit should be quickening or, or illuminating the Christian to understand the text, whereas a believer reads this, reads the fact, or sees the fact that we're studying this, and says, Revelation 17, you guys believe that? Y'all are nutty. That's what an unbeliever says, because they can't possibly understand this. And the message behind this, behind all the complex imagery, behind the metaphors, behind the things that we are not even capable of interpreting yet, behind all of this, and we've been saying this throughout Revelation, this series, this book is about faith. This book is about uh, uh, perseverance of the saints. This book is about you being encouraged in the face of whatever the world is going to throw at us. And further, for anyone who is genuinely saved, it just instills in us this confidence because we know that if our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, if they were written in that book before the foundation of the world, before the creation itself, then nothing is ever going to change that. I can't change that. You can't change that. Nothing's going to change that. The beast can't change it. The world system can't change it. If our name's in the book, we're headed to heaven and we're going to be with Jesus forever. And that puts such confidence inside us. And that's what Revelation's about. The unseen spiritual power behind the world powers is further seen in the seven heads and the seven mountains and Rome is built on seven hills. And so this is a reference to Rome, but not, not really the, the physical city of Rome so much as again, a reference to this world system. 
the world system by another name. The seven heads of the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. One commentator, Robert Mount, said this, while Rome is indicated, it symbolizes humanity organized in opposition to God and has its realization in every age and then culminating at the end of the age. George Eldon Ladd said it this way, the woman has formed an adulterous connection in every epoch of her history with the then existing world power. And so this is in play today. There are zero righteous, godly governments in the world today. Zero. Every one of them in some fashion is part of the world system that's in play. The woman, the prostitute. The woman has an adulterous connection in every epoch in history, not just with the most vile and most evil governments, but even with our own. The references in, in verse 10 to seven kings is symbolic for the various powers through the ages that have opposed God. Seven is the perfect or complete number of such kingdoms. Verse 11 shows that the, that, that the beast, verse 12, the 10 kings are to receive authority as kings for just one hour, a short period of time together with this beast. Verse 13, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city Babylon or Rome. Again, they're symbolic, they're metaphorical. Not, we're not thinking of physical cities. The great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth and all of it part of Satan's kingdom and he is the power behind it all. And they're all, see this next, and they're all on a self-destructive path. John hears that verse 15, the waters that you saw back in verse one, we read this, the woman was seated on, on the waters and he sees uh, the, the, the woman that you saw are the peoples, this is uh, verse 15, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, the nations that oppose God. And in a shocking turn of events here now, world system, governments, all of this, the power behind it, the people that are following it, verse 16, they all turn on each other. A civil war among the powers of evil and the powers of this world. The 10 horns that you saw, verse 16, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. How does that even make sense? They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. They burn down their own house, their own system. Mount says this, this, this turning of the beast against the woman who sits on it speaks of a terrible and mysterious law of political history. He goes on to say, that this, this is characteristic according to, according to which every revolutionary power contains within itself the seed of self-destruction. And this is true. If, if you like history and you've read history, you know this is true. Whether it's the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire, or you think in more contemporary terms of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, when those revolutions came, when those empires began, 
the seeds were already there in the founding of those empires for their own self-destruction. Mounts goes on to say it describes the self-destroying power of evil. The wicked are not a happy band of brothers, but precisely because they are wicked, they give way to jealousy and hatred so that at the climax of their mutual hatred, that will result in mutual destruction. They destroy themselves. And that leads us to this final characteristic of the world system, its ultimate demise. Verse 14, this is like the key to the entire chapter and, and should be underlined in your Bibles, highlight it in your e-Bibles. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. Like, bad move. Like, this is a terrible move on their part. They will make war on the Lamb, on Jesus Christ, and the Lamb will conquer them. Amen? Uh, details, by the way, details on that are to come in chapter 19 when we see the rider on the white horse. But God is himself the author of their confusion and, and, and he is behind their compulsion to destroy one another. Notice verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. God is sovereign over all of this. By being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, when I hear something like that, I just know like as a Christian, I don't need to worry about how things are playing out in the world today. Not a single moment of fretting should any Christian be putting into what's happening in the world today. We don't need to worry about the downward spiral of our society. We don't need to worry about the immorality that's around us. And there's plenty of it. Because the immorality, the immoral, will destroy themselves. In fact, their competing passions will be their undoing. You see, our culture, and, and here's an example of this, one, one line of thought. Our culture believes that there is no objective truth. Western society, North America, Europe in particular, believes that there is no objective truth. The irony of making a statement, by the way, is that that actually is a truth claim. You can say that there's no objective truth, but that in itself is a truth claim. And, and they mean to say it in an objective way. Everybody must believe that there's no objective truth. It's, it's, it's um, a self-defeating statement, in fact. But here's what the world believes. There's no objective truth, that everyone can have their own truth, but that in itself is also self-defeating. Because if there's no objective truth and I can have my own truth, then speeding limits, speed limits are irrelevant. Because if I, some people are very happy with this line of, <laughs> line of reasoning, by the way. But, but, but if I just say, you know what, I, just, I don't believe there's an objective speed limit. I believe that if I want to drive at 70, 80, 90 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone, that I ought to be able to do that because I have my own truth. And my truth says that it's safe to do so, and I can get home faster. So that's one kind of silly example of this. But also, there's no basis for property. There's no basis for ownership. If I feel that I should be able to take something that you would consider as yours, your truth is that it's yours, but my truth is I don't think you really need it. In fact, studies have been done more recently, and they've been um, 
uh, trying to track down the reason for in our current economy in 2023, in our current economy with inflation, there are a lot more um, uh, in the retail industry, people are just seeing like a higher incidence of, of uh, theft, of shoplifting. And so they started talking to people, why in the world are our stores seeing a spike in shoplifting? And it's because people are rationalizing. They're saying, I don't have as much money and I should because inflation isn't my fault and governments have created this whole thing. So therefore, if I put some extra groceries in my cart that I don't pay for, or I go through the self-scan and I don't scan those things and I leave with those things, that's okay. I can rationalize that because Galen Weston is rich enough. Galen doesn't need it. Galen won't even miss it. And if you go into his stores, all of his stores are still stocked up beautifully, so they're just going to replace the empty spot on the shelf, and so I, I can just take that. I mean, this is the rationale that's happening out there. And listen, if you believe there's no objective truth, which is what our culture is saying, you really don't have an argument for that. I get how we still have a criminal code, and that's, that's apparently still illegal. But according to the prevailing principle of the culture, there's actually nothing wrong with shoplifting if you believe the greater ethic that you've created for yourself, which is, I need the food and I don't have the money for the food. Now, it goes further than that because the trajectory of that is alarming and it goes far beyond speed limits and food. Because if there is no baseline for morality, then sexuality in all of its perverse forms can be practiced with impunity. Who is to say really on the basis of this, if there's no objective truth and my truth is what matters, then who's to say that bestiality is wrong or pedophilia? Who's really going to say that? That polyamory is wrong or polygamy or choosing one's gender and all the other manifestations of sexuality and gender in our culture. Who's really to say that these things are wrong? But here's the reason why we don't need to worry about this. Because within the progressive side of our culture that's really pushing these things and saying things that are grossly in conflict with each other, that within progressives, that side of the camp, there are already fissures developing. Where some progressives are at odds with, without going into the details, are at odds with other progressives over some of these very things. And it's because they have no foundation because they can't have an objective truth. And I'm just telling you, the progressives will eat each other. And we don't need to have any fear about these things. They will destroy themselves because, coming back to the text, God has put it into their hearts to do just that. He's sovereign over all of these things. And despite the moral bankruptcy of our country, you should not think that God in any respects is losing this battle, because he is not. They will make war on the lamb. They are making war on the lamb. They are fighting Jesus. And the lamb will conquer them. Jesus gave his life on the cross. In that moment that he said, it is finished, it was finished. The victory was won in that very moment. We're not waiting to see if the victory actually plays out. It's already played out. It's already happened. He's already defeated the powers of darkness that are at play in the world. He's already defeated the beast, the woman, all of it. And we, like Paul can say, we know him and the power of his resurrection. 
If you're not yet a Christian, here's the thing I want to say to you, because I'm, I'm speaking for Christians when I say this, but if you're not yet a Christian, if you're in this room and you're not yet a Christian, or you're watching me on the live stream, I'm just telling you, your team is losing. Get with the lamb and join the winning team. Get with God and be with Jesus in this fight. Well, God, that's the, that's the six characteristics of the world, and God wants my op- eyes to be open to all of that. And then secondly, see this, and I didn't leave much time for this, and it's really the best part of this entire message. He goes, God wants I- my eyes to be open to the world, but he also wants my confidence to be in him, in who he is. He wants my confidence to be in who he is, verse 14, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. In fact, in in chapter 19, when he rides in on the white horse, that's what's written on his thigh and commentators disagree on this point. We're not sure if he's wearing some kind of like long graphic tee with King of kings and Lord of lords on his thigh or if it's an actual tattoo. If you have any problems with what I just said there, uh, again, my email address is dfrancois at <laughs> harvestberry.ca. He has it written on his thigh, Lord of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is king over all the world's kings. He is king over all the world's presidents and prime ministers and the chairman of communist countries. He is Lord over every business leader. He is Lord over every head of every organization. He is Lord over every influencer, no matter how many followers they have. My confidence is who he is, and my confidence is also in who he says I am. This is so critical. Because notice here in verse 14, it continues, and, and those with him, that's, that's those of us that are Christians, those with him are called and chosen and faithful, called to be saved. In that moment when you made that decision to become a follower of Christ, when you were confronted with the gospel message, that was a response to the call of God, the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life. That we are chosen from the foundation of the world. Our names were written into the book of life before the creation itself. And then we are faithful, proving the genuineness of our salvation by persevering to the very end, showing ourselves to be faithful to him throughout our lives. And the question I've written here is, is that, is that you? Are you called and chosen and faithful to him as best you can? That's your identity. And the great tragedy for for many is that they spend an entire life trying to figure out who they are, what their identity is. And God tells us with, with such clarity. It's actually identity issues that drive us away from God or identity issues that will drive us to him, finding our identity in him. It's identity issues that, that, that tempt us to go after the world, to be drawn in and attracted to the woman. And so, believe what he says about you. Identify with the Lamb of God. You are chosen, you are called, 
You are faithful. Open your eyes to see all that God wants you to see. Let me pray. Father, this again, a heavy chapter, so much for us to process through all of this. And very different things to process for those who are believers and those who are not. Father, as as followers of Christ, God, I pray that we would be laser focused on who you are, on on the fact that the victory's already gained, that the lamb will conquer them. Father, that we'd find our confidence in that and we would rest in the identity that you have given to us as called and chosen and faithful. But God, I also pray for those who are not yet believers, who have not yet confessed their sin and received the forgiveness that you offer, not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. Father, the prospects for these are dire. And I pray in this moment, your Holy Spirit would be convincing them of the truths they've just heard convicting them of their sin and drawing them into a relationship with you. Father, this is a work that only you can do. We've done our part now. We've heard the word. We've listened to the word. We've sought to worship you and pray here. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to do this work in each of our lives. So we plead with you for that. And we pray these things in the name of the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. Amen.